regard to the book of Judges tonight, Judges 2. We had planned to read the entire chapter, but because of the circumstances, we're going to abbreviate that somewhat. We'll read through the first 13 verses of this second chapter of Judges. And our text for tonight, as announced in our bulletin, is found in the last part of verse 10 through verse 13. And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you unto the land which I swear to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive out from before you, drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord spake these words unto all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being a hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-Hirath, in the mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gaash. And also all that, that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And here we have the text. And there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods, of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord, and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Thus far the reading of the scripture. We said our text is found in the last part of verse 10 through verse 13, which I will not read again at this time. There is... There are two things that I wanted to call to your attention, especially in the light of the immediate preceding context, beloved. And that context that I have in mind goes back to verse 6, 6 and 7 especially, where you notice that the scripture here asserts that the children of Israel served the Lord their God all the days of Joshua and of the elders that survived him, that outlived him. Uh, Joshua, of course, was the one to whom the governorship, leadership of Israel was committed at the death of Moses. And with faithfulness, he had uh, led the children of Israel, leading them even to battle over against the enemies that dwelled in the land, which had to be, according to the command of God, uh, destroyed. And 
All the elders that served him, which implies, of course, that the elders that were standing at his side in the government of the children of Israel were also God-fearing men, men who had a tremendous influence and power among the children of Israel so that Israel as a whole served the law. That doesn't mean, of course, that everyone head for head served God. We know that that, of course, was uh, quite different. For example, you had a man such as Achan, who did not fear God and disobeyed God to the destruction of himself and his family at the time of the destruction of Jericho. So that does not mean that every last one, head for head, of the children of Israel feared God and served him. But the idea is that Israel here is viewed organically. And that means that as a nation, under the influence of Joshua and of the elders, the nation served Jehovah. The second thing is that we must notice, and this is very important, that Joshua and the elders who outlived him died. We read of the death of Joshua in the verses 7 and, or 8 and 9 of this preceding context. At 110 years old, he was gathered unto his fathers and was buried in his inheritance in the land of Ephraim, in the inheritance of Ephraim. And in the first part of verse 10, you read, And all, also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. That undoubtedly reflects on those elders of whom the preceding context speaks, that they, along with Joshua, were responsible for the uh, general spiritual tenor of the nation so that the entire nation under their instruction and under their influence were faithful to God but now they passed away and very shockingly perhaps you read in our text in the first part of our text that there arose another generation a generation after them, which knew not the law, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. That's a very striking and shocking statement here. And it is precisely to this that I wanted especially to call your attention tonight. But before we do this, I want to call to your attention another principle, proof, I think, of the Word of God, which is uh, brought out here in this text. You might conclude when you read, And all, all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, that you would have a generation who feared the Lord and they died. And now, from that point on in the history of Israel, there is another generation who did not serve the Lord. And if that would be your conclusion, then you would be seriously mistaken. And so would I. What we must see here is that one generation does not so historically succeed the other, but that each generation finds its roots, its, its, its historical roots. And if it is a spiritual generation, its spiritual roots in the generation that precedes it, so that there is constantly going on. In the history and development of God's covenant in the world, 
one generation coming up out of another generation that precedes it. I'm going to come back to that truth pretty soon because when we get to our second point tonight in our sermon, this becomes a very important observation. And you must see that. And I wanted to tell you before we get there that this is what we must expect. Otherwise, our text has absolutely no significance for you and me tonight. I could just as well say amen and send you home. I would have no message for you at all. Because all that we would have to say is there was another generation that came up that was wicked. And, well, so what? And they perished. Well, so what? And you would get nothing out of it. But what you must see is that this is a constant reality, a constant recurring truth that in one generation is the next. And it makes a great deal of difference what that present generation is with respect to the generation that is to follow. If you don't see that, then of course... You don't see the meaning of our text tonight, nor do you see the important central truth of the scriptures relative to the historical development of God's covenant in the world. As I said, we will come back to this idea presently, but I would like to have you see with me tonight that we are under the text to consider the rising of another generation. And I would have you notice with me, first of all, according to the text, its frightful description. In the second place, to an ever-recurring reality, ever-present reality. What is happening here to Israel is something that is constantly happening also in the Church of Christ today. And finally, briefly, to its sobering effect, the rising of a new generation, its frightful description, its ever-present reality, and its sobering effect. When we consider the description which is given to us here of this new generation that is rising, we observe in the very last part of verse 10 of our text uh, that the generation knew not the works which he, that is Jehovah, had done for Israel. They knew not the works which Jehovah had done for Israel. And that, of course, reflects on history. And that history begins with the very inception of the nation Israel at the time of the calling of Abram or of Ur Chaldees. You remember? God called Abram out of Ur Chaldees and said to him, Abram, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bring you into a land that is going to be yours and belong to a great nation. And the Lord changed his name from Abram to Abraham, signifying that out of Abraham there would come many peoples, a great retinue of generations would arise out of Abram. A little later, we learn in this history that Jacob, with 70 members of his family, moved from Canaan to Egypt, where they sojourned for the greater part of 400 years where, according to the word of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, the Lord made a nest for that people, a fur-lined nest, 
and he looks at them as a nest of eaglets that must presently learn to break the nest and to fly as they would through the wilderness to the land of Canaan. Uh, we learn also there in that connection of how the children of Israel were preserved through the selling of Joseph by his brethren into the hands of the Ishmaelites uh, who preceded Israel to the land of Egypt to preserve many souls alive during the time of intense famine. That was history. We learn also how the Lord, when 430 years were accomplished, and another Pharaoh arose who knew not Joseph, began to persecute the children of God, and to bring them under serious bondage, how the Lord delivered his people with ten wonderful plagues, destroying that nation and its king, and setting his people free, and how he led them through dry ground, through the midst of the Red Sea, into the wilderness, and how he preserved Israel in that wilderness, as it turned out to be for 40 long years. And finally, through the hand of Joshua, led them again across the Jordan into the land of the promise, where he saw to it that each tribe received its own inheritance in that land. That was the history. That was the revelation of the mighty works of God. And what we must see at this point, beloved, is the fact that every one of the details of this history were a revelation of the marvelous grace of God to that people. That began already with Abram. God said to him, he had no children, of course. God said to him, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And the man was so old, he could not even generate a son. And his wife was so old, she could not bear any. So that when the Lord came to them and said, I'm going to make of Sarah a seed that shall become exceeding great, she laughed. She says, that's impossible. How in the world is that possible? And the Lord says, there's nothing impossible with me, but I'm going to show you by a wonder how that I am able to make out of the dead the living. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 4, reflecting on this same matter. Out of the deadness of Sarah's womb, he's going to make a living nation uh, of multitude of people. And he did. That was a wonder. I figured it out one time, you know, when Israel left Egypt, they were at least 650,000 men able to fight men of war, which means, of course, that that nation could very well have been in the million at the time that they left Egypt. But to proceed to show to you the marvel of this people, how God saved this people alive in the days of famine, through Joseph, that was miraculous. You must understand that. This was a wonder work which God performed for Israel, for Israel's welfare, for her salvation. And moreover, when Israel was brought into serious bondage so that they cried unto the Lord with pain because of the whips of Pharaoh's servants, the Lord heard their cry, and he sent to them a deliverer, Moses, uh, who led them out of Egypt, the house of bondage, after God had virtually destroyed Pharaoh and his host in the sea. And he led them, and this is the wonder of that history, through the Red Sea on dry ground, which our Reformed fathers still reflect on in the baptism form, which is very significant for us, whereby Israel was separated from the world and brought into the kingdom and service of the living God. And when he got them into the wilderness, beloved, it was a miracle how he preserved them. 
when he brought water to them out of the rock, when they were thirsty, when he brought bread to them from heaven in the manna, when he saw to it that their shoes and their clothes did not wear out, but they were preserved and provided for all through their wilderness journey. That was a miracle. And then they came to Sinai where another miracle was performed when with thunder and lightnings God gave unto them his law and the ceremonies. And he made them to become a theocracy, a people that was uh, subsumed under the rule and the government of Jehovah their God. That was a wonder. And the miracles didn't cease. But when Israel rebelled against the Lord, again and again they rebelled. He in his mercy forgave them. And he delivered them, even after he had sent to them chastisements through 40 years of the wilderness. And finally he brings them into the land of Canaan through the hand of Joshua. And again through a miracle where they walked upon dry ground through the riverbed, where the water stood up as a wall on one side, and Israel could walk across unmolested, unperturbed, into the land of the promise. And they came to Gilgal, where again a threefold wonder of God was performed before them, where the manna ceased, and they could eat, according to the promise of God, of the fatness of the land which flowed with milk and honey, where they circumcised their young ones, which they hadn't done for 40 years in the wilderness, again signifying that they were a cleansed people through the blood of the eternal covenant, and where they celebrated for the first time after 40 years the Passover, which they had celebrated the last night they were in the house of bondage. So one day, it was a wonder when God led them to Jericho and the walls fell down and they walked in and destroyed the city. That was a miracle. It was a miracle that God provided for them, each one his inheritance, and saw to it that they were entered into the promised covenant and land which God had provided for them. That was the history. But this generation knows nothing of the works of the Lord. That's frightful, you know. Oh, that doesn't mean they didn't know anything about what happened in their holy past. <clears throat> I think, as we said on another occasion, tradition was very faithful in those days. <clears throat> Even the enemies, of course, knew of the mighty works of God. Balak, king of Moab, shivered in his boots when he heard about how God delivered Israel out of Egypt. The king of Jericho also uh, was in terror when he learned of this incident. If the enemies knew about it, why should not the children of Israel? They certainly knew about it. But the thing is, beloved, and this is what we must see, this generation did not live through that history. They were the children of those who had been in Egypt. Only Joshua, but now he was dead too. And the elders, they were dead too. That was the last of those people that came out of Egypt. They were all gone. The rest of them fell in the wilderness. A new generation that had not lived through the wonders, through the marvelous works which God had performed for that people Israel. That history did not vibrate in their hearts, in their souls. It was not something that made them to bow down before the mighty God of Israel in worship. It was simply dead tradition. That's all. They did not even pay attention to those works. They probably said to one another and to their children, Oh, forget about it. We don't live in the past. We live in the future. Forget about the past. We live in the future. Something like you find in the Church of Christ today. And I want to point out to you that history is very important. Not only this history that we've just recorded and repeated, but our own history. That's important. 
Where did you come from? What happened in the past? Does it have any significance for you? Do your children understand where you came from? What you stand for? Why you are here tonight? As a Protestant Reformed Church, do you know that? Do you know your history? That's important. And that history, of course, if it is anything at all of importance to us, is a revelation of the God of the covenant. Make no mistake about it. God was mysteriously and wonderfully gathering and preserving his church throughout history. I'll come back to this when we get to our last point tonight. But that's what they were ignorant of. And it follows, you know, this is what you read too in the text, and even before that which I just called to your attention, it follows if you do not know what Jehovah did, then you don't know Jehovah. And that's what you read here too. Which knew not the Lord. That was this generation. They knew not the Lord. Oh, that doesn't mean they didn't know about him. They had some intellectual knowledge of him. How could it be otherwise? They still were religious people. They went through the forms of religion. How in the world could they ever have that without mentioning the name of Jehovah? But you understand, they did not know him with the knowledge, the saving knowledge of faith. So that they loved him and they would serve him with all their heart and mind and strength. That's what that means. They knew not Jehovah. And that means, of course, therefore, that they didn't serve him. That's the third frightful thing that you read here. And the rest of the text is devoted to that idea. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers. And the text concludes, and they served Baal and Ashtoreth. Those were the gods of the heathen that were there in the land. Baal was the male god of the Canaanites, and Ashtoreth was the female. Oh, yeah, they had a female god, too. What the ERA wants today, they want us to say about God that he's a she. Because there are so many women, you know, that serve God too, and um, they're females. Well, this isn't something new. This is just as old as this history. They serve two gods, a male god and a female god. And Baal was the uh, chief of the Canaanitish pantheon, where they served many gods. He was the god of nature, the god of fertility, who gave fertility to the seed that was planted in the soil, uh, to the animal that must reproduce, as well as to man, the god of fertility. And Astaroth was his auxiliary who helped to fertilize and to make grow from a material carnal standpoint those who served him or them. That's what they did. You, you can't, you say it's almost unbelievable. How in the world how in the world could a people that should have been instructed and indoctrinated in the truth concerning the only true God turn right around and go out and serve a God like that? But they didn't know God. They didn't know his works. They didn't know their history. And therefore, it follows that they served mammon. That's the New Testament name for that same God. The God of this world, the God of riches and honor and fame, material prosperity, without heaven, without God. You understand? That's what they did. 
And I say, that's a frightful situation. A terrible description of people who came up out of the generations of Joshua and the elders. That leads me to my second thought for tonight. I have to repeat just a little bit at this point because this is the heart of my sermon tonight and I gave you a smattering of the idea in the introduction but what we must see here is that these generations the generation of Joshua and the elders is not a generation that is loose from the generations that come up now, you might get that impression when you read the text superficially that this is what happened, but that's not the case. It's never the case. The truth is that the generations are like a folding cup. You may see it that high, but when it is pulled apart, it all comes up out of that high to that high. It develops. It stretches out. And the one generation produces the other. This too is a frightening and sobering truth, beloved. This is what happened here. The new generation that knew not Jehovah and his works and who served Baal and Ashtaroth were the children of the generation of the elders and of Joshua. That's always the case. And that, of course, brings the word of God tonight not to the new generation particularly, but to the present generation. Now, how do you explain that? How do you explain that out of that good generation that in the organic sense of the word served Jehovah, that there could come up out of that another generation who knows not Jehovah, who uh, does not honor Jehovah's works, who knows not their history, and who serves the gods of the heathen? How do you explain that? And the simple truth is, and oh, you've heard it many times, I'm sure, that when God's people bring forth their seed, that it is not always holy seed. <coughs> there are among them Jacob's and Esau's. They were always there. You found them also through this history that I have just briefly reviewed for you. And that's how you can explain a man like Achan. How in the world could a man like that come up out of a generation? How do you explain people like Koradatham and Abiram who went directly to hell under the judgment of God? How do you explain that? That is to be understood, you know, by the fact that we cannot bring forth the children of God. All that we can bring forth is carnal seed. If that were otherwise, I'd tell you how wonderful that would be. You could say to your wife, let's have a family of children of God. We're going to bring forth the children of God. But you can't say that. You can't say that with definiteness, with finality. The history of God's covenant shows quite differently that uh, Isaac and Rebekah had a Jacob and an Esau. And mind you, in the very sphere where God says to Isaac and Rebekah, I am the God of thy father Abraham, and I will be thy God. Walk in my way, and fear me. And he did, principally. 
But the seed that he brought forth was reprobate seed as well as elect. And you can't avoid these concepts. They're right there, right on the surface of the scriptures and of history. And when you have a generation, as Joshua was, and the elders who feared God, and who therefore also had control over Israel, were powerful enough to see to it that the nation, organically speaking, served Jehovah, there was no trouble. Then that reprobate element is pushed to the side. It has no power. It has no influence. But as soon as Joshua and the generations of the elders that feared God passed away, they did not speak anymore. They did not exercise discipline anymore. They did not allow the word of God to be spoken anymore in truth. And that element that was evil became a majority, you have precisely what takes place here in this text. They knew not Jehovah. They knew not the works of Jehovah. And they served Baal and Ashtoreth. Make no mistake about that. And this is an ever-present reality. This is not something of the history of the hoary past, beloved. But God continues his covenant today. And his promises that he gave to Abraham are just as real and just as certified as the very day that he spoke them to that servant of God. I will give unto you the land that flows with milk and honey. Oh, that's not the land of Egypt, of Palestine, where the children of Israel went. That was only a picture of it. But I will give unto you something that is still greater. The heavenly. And then you have a generation that comes up and says, Fooey on the whole business. Don't want anything of that. We don't know anything about that. We don't care about that. That's all hoary past. That's old stuff. We don't care about that. Give us something new. Give us something for today. That's the way they talk. And this is what you must expect, beloved. This is what's going to happen to this congregation too. Make no mistake about it. As soon as the Joshua and the elders pass away and there is no more the sound and principal voice of the leadership of Israel that is heard among us and Christian discipline is no longer exercised so that as Joshua, when Achan went into the uh, camp of Jericho and stole of the goods that was forbidden, troubled Israel, that he went directly to the face of Jehovah and he says, Lord, what's the matter? What is the trouble? Why can't we take Ai as we took Jericho yesterday? And the Lord says, you've got an evil man in your camp. Get rid of him. Destroy him. And so they cast lots. And the lot fell upon Achan and his family. And they were stoned to death and burned, according to the word of the Lord. Christian discipline was thoroughly exercised in the camp of Israel. And that is her salvation, beloved, when the word of God is clearly announced and spoken. When the law of God is thoroughly stressed, and when Christian discipline is sincerely exercised, then that people, though they may have the potential of another generation that is evil, that knows not Jehovah, they are quiescent, they are brought into silence, they cannot exercise power. But as soon as that word 
of admonition and of instruction is silent. And perhaps the faithful become discouraged. You know, they do that. Maybe you talk that way already. What's the use in telling my son and my daughter about it? They go their own stubborn way anyway. And the consistory may assume that same attitude. Especially if you have a lot of cases to take care of. It's just, thing is going altogether too far. And so you keep your mouth shut. And pretty soon the Lord takes you away. You die too. And then you're completely silent. This is what happens all the time in the church. And beloved, make no mistake about this either. The church of Jesus Christ in this 20th century stands far ahead of the church of this day to which my text refers. They had only pictures to look at. We have the reality. And they had Egypt, the house of bondage. But we have a greater bondage than they ever had. The bondage of sin and death. You understand? They had a Savior who brought them out with a mighty hand. With ten wondrous miracles. But beloved, we have a Savior who went down into hell to deliver us from the bondage of sin and death. Suffering in our stead. That's a miracle. That's a wonder. Pay attention to it. That's the truth. That's our history. Our history was written with a pen of blood on the cross. 1900 years ago. When God took all of our sins and laid them upon the head of our Redeemer. And crushed him into hell. You understand? That's history. That's the center of history. That's the heart of our salvation. And God raised him from the dead. And gave unto him the spirit without measure. Not the spirit of the prophets of the ages past. But the spirit of Jesus Christ. Which he poured out into the church on Pentecost. Which dwells in our hearts. Revealing unto us the things of the word and of the spirit of God. Oh, how rich and glorious is the church of the new dispensation. This church, beloved, in Redlands, California. Do you understand that? That's your history. And you came out of the early, immediate history. The history of the Reformation. Where many of the saints were slain for the truth. Do you understand that? And they gave us our confession. The wonder of the word of God. Briefly expressed by those who in their last breath in the flames. Exclaimed. God is the God of our salvation. In Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the history beloved. And don't ignore it. And you who are still the fathers of this generation must see to it that your seed understands this well and is brought under the discipline of that word. And if you don't, precisely what happened here is going to happen to this church. You understand that? That's the sobering effect. I'm sorry I have to be a little bit brief tonight because we don't want to interfere with these other people that are coming pretty soon. There's so much that could be said here. First of all, there's an old Dutch saying which I think is quite apropos here. And it's for Leiden left at Hayden and it knew what Borden saw. Translated roughly that is, in the past, lies the present. In the now, what shall be. And that, beloved, is certainly applicable to this truth that I have to convey to you tonight. Out of the past, we came. We are the present. 
but out of you must come that which is yet to come. Don't forget that. That's the implication of that expression as applied to the text. And let me show to you from the scriptures how that Moses, before he passed away on Nebo, was deeply conscious of this. He said, when you come into the good land, you will come to two mountains, Mount Gerson and Mount Ebal, the mountain of the blessing and of the curse. And when you come to the mountain of the blessing, then you will hear from the law of God how God is going to bless you and your generations in the promised land. But when you come to Gerson or to Abel, you will come to the Mount of the Curse. And there the Lord is going to pronounce upon you many curses if you depart from the Word of God and you walk in your own way. You forget about Jehovah and his works and your discipline. You go your own way then you bring a curse upon you. You can read it when you come home in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And Joshua, this man of God, who passed away according to our text, before he died in Joshua 23 and 24, calls all Israel to him. And he says to that congregation of Israel, People of God, I'm getting old. I have served the Lord all the days of my life. I have led you to this day into all the truth. I have fought with you and for you the battles of Jehovah. And you must love and serve him. I chose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve Jehovah. Walk according to your own ways. You're going to be destroyed. You're going to be swallowed up of the enemies that are in the land. And God is going to decimate you. You will no longer be a nation under the name of Jehovah. You're lost. And this is what I have to say to you tonight, beloved. That truth hasn't changed one bit. It's still the same way. Love and serve Jehovah who has revealed himself to us in many, many different ways as the God of our salvation who has given unto us exceeding precious promises that stretch out to the perfect day to the new creation in which righteousness shall dwell. And this is all yours, beloved. It is your glory. It is your glorious future. And God, of course, will preserve his church. Make no mistake about it. In this day and in our day, there are always 7,000 that do not bow the knee to Baal because God preserves his church. But with the majority of it, God is displeased and they're destroyed. You must hear that. You must understand that. That we with our children, and this is the calling of the present generation, you're still living you have gone through something that's true with our own history too. Some of us are sitting here tonight, gray hairs, bald heads, that have gone through maybe two, three different splits in the church. I did. I know what it's all about. God saved his church through the way of controversy, through the way of strife, through the way of battle, he saved his church just as truly as Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Make no mistake about it. But if you forget Jehovah and another generation comes up who doesn't hear this word of God from this pulpit in the catechism class, in the societies, in the home, in the school. If they don't hear that, 
and we are a lost generation. We have a new generation, all right, but it is a generation that doesn't know Jehovah, nor his works, and who serves Baal and Ashtoreth. Is that what you want? Is that what you desire? Then you neglect the holy things and the holy calling which God has given to you and to me. Fathers in Israel, revive! And let the word of God be revived in you and live spiritually once more as it behooves a redeemed people. And you have everlasting salvation. But if you turn from him and you go your own way, you are no different than Korah, Datham, and Abiram. You shall be destroyed forever. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we come to thee with thanksgiving for thy awful truth, which we might consider for a little while this evening. Wilt thou din it into our hearts? And grant that it may bring us, if we have failed along the way, to repentance on our knees before thee. And in answer to our petition for forgiveness, give us grace that we may return once more in faithfulness to discharge our calling in our generation. And grant also, Lord, that we may see in our children the generation that must come the effects of that parental instruction and ecclesiastical instruction which is given unto them regularly, that they fear thee, that they love thee, that they rejoice in their history and look forward to the end of history when all things shall be consummated in the new creation where thou shalt be all in all. Hear our prayer and bless us with the pardoning of all our sins in speaking and hearing, for Jesus' sake. Amen.